Welcome to Any Honey and the Newt. Welcome to another episode of Any Honey in the Newt. We're glad to have you and uh, continue our series on experience and subjectivity. And last week we were talking about taste as one of the types of value. And today our topic is truth. But before we get into the philosophy, science kind of side of things, what do you think of Paul Pierce? Oh man, Paul Pierce. I was never a huge fan of him. Um... I liked him. Well, I shouldn't say I liked him. I liked the early 2000s Celtics teams with him and Antoine Walker. Um, And then once, I think Antoine Walker went to Dallas. It was either Dallas or Washington. I can't remember which one. Um, But then the Celtics kind of fell apart for a while. And then they started to make a little comeback. Obviously, that was when the Kevin Garnett trade happened and the Ray Allen trade happened. Um so I was I was already a huge fan of Kevin Garnett, and then I was like a fan of that team until they basically became like the villains of the league, and Kevin Garnett <laughs> became like the dirtiest player in the game. Um, but then uh, I you know I didn't really ever truly I thought he was a great basketball player, but I didn't ever truly respect him as like an all time great, um, except for when he went to the Wizards to play with John Wall and Bradley Beal and like the last season of his career he had that weird stint in new jersey that really messed them up for a long time uh but uh he had this like game winner in the playoffs i don't know if you remember this with the wizards and it was like this perfect microcosm of like paul pierce's old man game which he had for his entire career (laughs) and he just got this like step back three game winner and he did this classic paul pierce like celebration at the end of the game um and it was like such an up-and-coming team i was like authentically happy for them and i was like (laughs) okay i can say he's like deserving of this all-time great status uh so i'll throw this question back on you but i also really want to know why you bringing up paul pierce in a podcast about philosophy (laughs) Uh, well, yeah, I, uh, it, that run where he hit that step back three, was that the same one where he had a game-winning block and, and yelled, I call game, I call game? <laughs> yeah, I <think> so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, honestly, I missed early Paul Pierce. Somehow he was in the league and an all-star before I even knew who he was. And there was all this hype. Like in the video game, he was a highly rated player. Uh, people that were fans of the Celtics or, or Eastern Conference knew Paul Pierce and, and touted him highly. And I I started watching his game and I was like, I, I don't get it. He doesn't have like a lot of speed. His his game looks pretty standard. Like I didn't see any flash or understand like why he was like he was good. He, he could shoot well. I understood he was talented, but I didn't get like superstars usually have like a thing they do very, very well, um, whether that's like amazing blocks or or a great like drive and and finish or something like that but he just seemed to take jump shots and i couldn't figure out like why people loved him so much and then uh kind of the same thing as you as he got into his later career with the wizards and clippers i i was like okay he's he doesn't have the athleticism anymore but he's still really contributing very well he's got 
a higher basketball IQ than I gave him credit for. So I came to appreciate like he he was a thinker about the game that didn't didn't give that appearance. Like he just kind of looked hard nosed and determined and and willing himself to win. But there was a lot of acumen to it as well. Yeah, I've totally forgot he played for the Clippers like right at the very end. And uh, what you said makes a ton of sense. Uh, one thing that always stuck out to me that actually is now also just occurring to me is he, he was kind of like a Carmelo before Melo existed because he got drafted, what, like five years before him, uh, which now feels like an eternity. But you think about it, <laughs> hindsight, Paul Pierce was like just beginning his his legacy at that at that time when Carmelo got drafted. He came into the league doing the exact same thing. It was like, I'm a mid-range jump shooter a ju- you know, uh, shooter, and he could shoot the three. He could drive, but he never did those stuff exceedingly well. And uh, a good comparison, I remember Brandon Roy when he got drafted. He was being compared mm. to as like a uh, Super Mario in Mario Kart, which is the most outlandish player <laughs> comparison. But it made sense. He's like he was basically like the average character, right? He doesn't do any one thing spectacularly. But he does everything good enough to like transcend kind of everything. And I think that's like really what Paul Pierce was. He could get like, you know, 10 assists if he needed to. He could get 10 rebounds if he needed to. He could get five steals if he needed to. And he would basically do those within the flow of the game on an as needed basis. He It never looked like he was like, you know, going into ball dominant mode where he's just like trying to take over and will his team to victory. He was always kind of just like, I just need to do what needs to be done right here in the moment. And it's not going to look like it requires a lot of effort. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I always kind of wonder what if scenarios, like what if Paul Pierce had been with the Spurs and been coached by pop or what if he had been on a team with other flashier players? I mean, eventually he had Garnett and Allen and Rondo and, and that team was a force to be reckoned with. And he was kind of considered the anchor of that, of that squad. But, um, uh, I just kind of wonder what his reputation and career tra- trajectory would have been in a different situation other than struggling with the Celtics early on. Would he have been recognized as a superstar if he was surrounded by other stars? Or was it because he was kind of the guy in Boston that that then other people noticed him and wanted to join up with him? It's kind of a weird what if. But all that to say, there's a pretty humorous uh, a story about how he got his nickname. Do you want to share yeah, um, well, I didn't know this until you mentioned it. I thought he actually came into the league with this nickname, which uh, is the truth, right? Um, and then you mentioned that Shaq gave him this nickname. So I found this article where Shaq tells this story, and it's not this like great revelation, but um, Shaq is quoted as saying, I noticed he wasn't just like everybody else. He was just hard to guard. And I was just like, man, this dude is the truth. So after the game, I pulled aside the Celtics beat writer. I looked him in the eyes and pointed to his pad, and I said, take this down. My name is Shaquille O'Neal, and Paul Pierce is the truth. Quote me on that, and don't take nothing out. I knew he could play, but I didn't know he could play like this. Paul Pierce is the truth. What weird nickname, the truth. <laughs> Especially I in basketball. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. In, in, in any kind of sporting event, uh, maybe maybe archery, like that might make sense. But in a lot of uh, sports, the truth, that just doesn't sound intimidating or, or like it's just a weird thing to use as a praising nickname. <laughs> Shaq has come up with some uh, kind of bonkers nicknames throughout 
uh, his nomenclaturing uh, lifespan. So I'll give him that he comes up with creative <laughs> nicknames. And uh, I yeah, guess yeah. If we were to think about it philosophically, um, and you actually were to ask yourself the question, is Paul Pierce the truth with regards to basketball? Like, how would you answer that question? Yeah, it, it is kind of interesting when I when I try to think about what did Shaq mean by by that comment? He is the truth. And the best I could come up with was like in clutch moments, you know that that he is going to do basketball the right way and try and get you that that clutch success. So he's he is the way or, or does things the way to accomplish the goal of the game to win um so there's something like uh he he pursues and succeeds in achieving the goal of the game that that was the best i could come up with uh, as far as like why is he the truth what do you think about that uh analysis yeah i keep thinking like uh we've talked about this before uh, or at least we've alluded to it right um the the skills required in basketball and like uh i think i'm already blanking if it was last week or the week before or whatever but like what makes uh what what answers that question like how is the game played the right way um Hmm. what's the ideal form of basketball right and it kind of leads to this question that i even just flat out asked you (laughs) if you would ever answer is like (laughs) is there some objective like all overarching truth the truth right and uh so in that kind of sense i would say that paul pierce is not that right like if any basketball player could quintessentially define uh the truth if there is such a thing it's definitely not paul pierce um (laughs) but if we think about it more on like a and I don't want to say like on an individual basis, but if we can start to to break down, uh, come up with these thick registers for uh, qualities of basketball, right? I actually do think that Paul hmm. Pierce checks a lot of those boxes, as I mentioned before, right? He can get you those rebounds that you need. It's not all just about the counting stats either. It turns out he was like a really efficient player throughout his career. And... Um, uh, one of the other qualities that I think really exemplified his career that I didn't really notice until later in his career, which was his decision-making, which to me was what the like the end-all, be-all of like making it in the NBA is really all about. And so like he hmm. definitely had those qualities. And so I c- could say like uh, he is definitely a version of truth for the NBA. Yeah, it's interesting to me to think about calling a person the truth. Although, you know, um, and I don't want to get into religion very much, there is just an analogy in Christianity where Jesus is called the truth, uh, you know, the way, the truth, and the life. And so there is a precedent for calling a person the truth. But I, I kind of want to think about this notion of the truth in a bigger, bigger kind of way, uh, which is why we're doing this episode today on truth. So... Instead of trying to like explain and do the pros and cons of all these different theories of truth, because there's a lot of them and they get pretty technical, and I think it would bore everybody to death. 
uh, I think we can just kind of stay at a surface level and, and talk about the difference between objective and subjective truth and uh, maybe what motivates the two different perspectives. And then I'd like to throw in a, a third perspective at the end of the episode. How's that sound? All right. So when we talk about the truth, I think the, the kind of framework that that's operating in is the idea of objective truth. So there are uh, things that are true that are true regardless of whether anybody knows them or not. So you don't have to believe it. It's just the truth. It is true that two times two equals four, right? And it doesn't matter who believes it. Uh, there's you. Somebody could say, I believe that two times two equals five. And we would just say, no, that's, that's wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> you do not know the truth, right? So there's a sense there in which the truth is I'm going to use the phrase mind independent. I think there's some problems with that phrase, uh, but the idea that it doesn't require anybody's approval or authority in order to, to count as the truth. Have you, have you encountered any kind of example of this objective notion of truth? I was just trying to think of some, and uh, I actually was going to ask you if math was an example of this sort of objective truth. Um, and I have to admit, like, this season... I had always thought in my mind that math was um, was like basically the foundation for objective truth. But now I'm like, I can't even accept yet fully that <laughs> math is a form of the truth or if it's just an expression, a way to express something. And it could even be false. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of other examples because like would an example of something be like that tree is green but that's also kind of perception based so i'm kind of drawing i'm at a loss here <laughs> right yeah i know that's an interesting example right because on the one hand we would want to say it's true that the the tree is green regardless of any whether anybody's looking at it or not right so in that sense we don't want to say that it's perception based because it would maintain its color regardless of who's looking at it but on the other hand, there is a sense in which, like, just thinking about the way that light reflects off of surfaces and interacts with things like rods and cones, that is very much a perception-related assertion, right? So, so maybe the tree isn't green if your cones turn that reflected light into another, like, perce perceive it as another color. Um, now, whether that's possible or not is, is another question. We're going to set that aside. We've already talked about perception and colors, a particularly yeah. murky issue. I guess but, uh, maybe a better way to phrase it is like if I had some sort of sensor that detects the wavelengths mm, of light, right? Um, yeah. Then we could like come to some sort of conclusion that this tree, I'm going to just throw out a number here. I think it's sort of like 570 nanometers. Like this tree reflects 570 nanometer wavelength light. And maybe that's a more appropriate use of the, the truth in this case. Good, good. And that's, that's a, I'm really glad you went that direction because I think sometimes when we get um, uncomfortable calling something objective truth, the people that support objective truth will come back and say, you know what you really need is a more explicit proposition. You need to make the assertion more clear and less relative. So instead of relating this tree, right, which is relative to the speaker, we would say the tree at this such and such coordinates at such and such a time, you know, 
do, has this property or does this thing. And, and now we've removed any relational aspect to the assertion. And then we could determine whether the assertion is true or false. Right? So that determination is independent of the, the person making the statement. And I think that's what objective truth is trying to get at. Like We want to know the truth value of assertions separately from the person who's making the claim. It's uh, interesting to me that we have to put in so much work to be able to get to the, I'm going to just say this, the underlying truth of something. Like, we can't just say something as simple as, like, that tree is green. Uh, because, like you said, like, that re that relies on what I see, what you identify as green. It relies on the location of the tree. Um, you know, there's a lot to unpack there, but... I, one thing that's interesting in this scenario is that language kind of allows us to to bridge that gap. It's like to, it allows us to like jump through layers of of meta philosophy here, so that we can kind of just come to this mutual understanding. Like, yeah, that tree is green. That's the truth. Speaking. Yeah. Of <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> and I did not pick no, the tree good. because I, Paul Pierce wore Celtics green for most of his career. I just want to throw that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll just start calling that tree the Paul Pierce tree. <laughs> um, yeah. So this notion of objective truth, I think we kind of get the gist. It's like what, what would be true if we took out all of the subject relative elements, right? But there is this kind of currency of language now where we talk about speak your truth. What is your truth? And what is true for you is not true for me, right? And there's this, at least teaching philosophy, I would encounter this a lot in, in intro classes where students would kind of push back against the idea of a, tr a true answer or the true answer. They would want to allow for multiple answers to be counted as true, even if they were contrary or contradictory. So do you have any kind of experience with this subjective notion of truth? I mean, right before the podcast started, I said to you, uh, I don't know if what I'll say is the truth, but I'll definitely speak <laughs> my truth, which um, I feel like when we talk about uh, more subjective truth, we encounter this all the time in, our, in normal conversations more frequently, and not just in the example that I just provided, but, um, you know, people having a disagreement over the same set of circumstances. And in some cases, one person just happens to recall the set of circumstances completely wrong, and that's okay. But a lot of times, you're relaying those circumstances from your perspective. And so they might be true for you, but the way that it came about from a different perspective uh, just so happens to be slightly different. Right. And uh, could be recalled in a truthful way from that perspective. And I think that's a little different from the knee jerk, uh, you know, freshman college, uh, my truth kind of thing, because they're just trying to get away with being able to say whatever they want. <laughs> uh, I think I think there's an interesting bridge there. So there's a meme that went around uh, when we were talking about polarization in, in news media and in social media that where there was a, a number on the ground. And I don't want to give, give away, but it was, you know, it looked like that, right? And one person's standing on one end of it and says, this is a six. And one person's standing on the other side of it and says, this is a nine. And they're yelling at each other, six, nine, six, nine. Well, from the person who's standing at the circle side of the, 
of the digit, it does appear as a six, right? That's if they were reading left to right, top to bottom, that's the number that it would look like. And the person standing on the other end would see a nine. So in that sense, we would say from this perspective, this sign looks like a six, represents six. And, and that statement could be true. So the person would say, I see six. It's true for them that it's a six. And it's true for the other person that it's a nine. Uh, and people take that kind of example of relative to perspective to then in, and say, well, we all have different experiences and backgrounds and perspectives. And so the way that that accumulated perspectival knowledge works is that I will have nuances or aspects of the way that the world has appeared to me that you that it will not have appeared to you. And so you can't grasp what it was like for me to have those experiences and to have that accumulated knowledge. So what's true for me, the body of things that are true for me, and some aspects of the subcomponents of that body of truth will differ from yours. And they may even conflict, right? So it may be the fact that based on my experiences, this is true. And based on your experiences, it's not true. And that might be okay. So, so that's kind of, I think, where this appeal to subjective truth and my truth and your truth comes from. Yeah, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with it. Uh, what you talked about is actually uh, really important, especially because last week we talked about tastes, right? And essentially, like, that's what it boils down to is, like, this set of experiences that I've had in my life has led me to this conclusion and you have a completely different set of experiences, and some might be similar, right? Enough that we have some mutual common ground uh, through understanding, but that leads you to a different conclusion. And uh, one thing that's always been interesting to me, especially this last year during the pandemic, was uh, how those uh, relative truths, those subjective truths, right, that emerge from tastes uh, also developed uh, specific values. And I, I'm not mm. going to say like if values emerge from tastes or the other way around is probably like a little bit of both, but, it, but uh, there definitely is some like some sort of play here is like, you know, these experiences in my life have shown me that I, I do, I value, I hold these values and another person could have sort of similar experiences, but different uh, all in the same, uh, they can have some overlapping values, but they'll have some very different values. And that's not necessarily a uh, good or bad thing like we talked about before, but it's just a different version of yeah. the truth. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I appreciate you saying that. And uh, I, I'm going to be a little maybe contrarian to the spirit of the age and say that I think there is a problem with this. If, if we reduce truth to taste, which I think is what's happening there in this subjectivization of, of truth, then what does the value of truth even mean? Does it really just mean I believe X? I believe that X? Um, because I can say that anyway. I don't need to add the value of truth to it. Like what the, the value, the truth evaluation doesn't add anything to the statement or, or to my belief, my level of confidence to my belief. I think when we appeal to truth, we're looking for something that supersedes taste. We're wanting something that, that we ought to agree on whether we do or not. So I, I think that uh, if we're going to talk about truth at all, we're looking for something that transcends that subjectivity. And, and to kind of 
give it a little bit of a theoretical motivation as well. There's a weird contradiction, self-contradiction that occurs if we say that truth is subjective, all truth is subjective. Think about that statement. All truth is subjective. Is that statement true or false? And to which subjects? Is it possible that that's true to some subjects and false to other subjects? Uh, because if that's the case, then there are, for some people, it is false that all truth is subjective, which means that truth would be objective, right? But if that's the case for one person, then it's the case for all people, because that's what it means to be objective truth. And so there's a weird paradox that occurs just in, in proclaiming the theory that all truth is subjective. You stole my thunder, man. I was just about to say what a paradox <laughs> that situation. Because I just kept thinking about if all truth is subjective is true, then even that statement is subjective. But then it, so because it's subjective, you couldn't say that all truth is subjective. <laughs> I was like, I'm in like a mind warp here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I had a lawyer uh, tell me once, he found out that I was working on truth in my dissertation. And he's like, well, isn't truth just what we agree on? And if we don't agree, then it's not true. And I was like, no, I don't agree with you. <laughs> because all of a sudden that falsifies his theory of truth. <laughs> you always know the right moment to be a contrarian. <laughs> so so i definitely understand like we want to respect the difference of experiences that people have had and and so we've talked about perspective and i don't want to downplay the importance of perspective in the ways that we come to believe things and in why things are important to us the values that we formulate right like i i want to respect and acknowledge that that differentiation by by people by culture by society whatever what I am uncomfortable with is extending it to all domains without justification. I'm not sure that we have a reason to, to believe that mathematics is subjective just because my experience growing up is different from your experience growing up. That seems like an odd, an odd jump in, in logic. Yeah, it'd be like, uh, like saying that gravity doesn't exist, right? Because we have different sets of experiences, but... Um, there's still something, even if your experience, like your your own world perception is different, that there's still something that's holding us all here and we can kind of get to it. And I guess like something that just occurred to me as you uh, were talking about the dangers of just assuming that all truth is subjective is like even when you start to apply uh, these thick registers to the language that you're using, I still feel like it forces a bit of objectivity. Like, even if you're on this quest to prove that, you know, jelly donuts are the best donut, um, which is, v like, probably a very subjective thing, right? The the phrases that no, I... No, no, that's an objective fact. <laughs> <laughs> but then I would just go back with you and say, like, well, what kind of jelly? Are you just looking at raspberry? What about strawberry? <laughs> grape jelly? <laughs> you didn't specify. Oh, get grape out of here. Get that out of here. <laughs> and you and I could agree that it's objective fact. But, uh, you know, <laughs> Salia, she prefers a, a non-filled donut. And I'm always like, oh, what's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but my point being that, um, you know, even like if you took something as subjective as that and you started breaking them down into the categories that we would use to qualify that statement, 
you're still you're then approaching objectivity which makes it more objective than subjective at least yeah i think once people start evaluating the problems with subjectivity you know the truth being subjective um and i, I mean this in philosophical circles uh i think that people then assume well because of this paradox for self-contradiction even if it feels wrong in some cases, truth must be objective. So now we have to find a solution for how that can be the case. Um, there are problems with the idea that truth is objective too, right? There's, if it's mind independent, then things can be true, even if it's impossible for us to ever know that they're true. And we might never really know the truth values of the things that we say, right? There's an epistemic gap between that something is true and, we kn and the, whether or not we know that it's true. And so there can be a problem with dogmatism. If I believe that something is true and there is something like objective truth, but I can never verify that what I believe is true is true, then sometimes I just have to go based on my confidence of belief or my personal evidence. And somebody else who has different evidence or different beliefs will disagree with me. And there's nothing to resolve that conflict because there must be a true answer, but a gap between our evidence and, and the truth. So there's this weird, like, we put the problems on subjectivity, but now there's also problems on objective truth, too. You, uh, to me, you just described, uh, again, you keep doing this every <laughs> week, the scientific process. And mm. am I misinterpreting here? Because, like, uh, you know, like, that's essentially what happens, right? Somebody has this, I don't want to say it's a belief, but they have a bunch of evidence that says that this thing is true so they investigate it and um and then they come up with more evidence that kind of to them proves that it's true and in some cases somebody else uh i mean step one right is to try and repeat the experiment as is so that somebody else somewhere else can do the same thing and come up with the same truth um, but the next level of that is to try it from a different set of approach and see if you get the same thing that way. And sometimes, you know, that part of mm -hmm. it fails as well. And so, like, you could say that the experiment's repeatable. And there's, uh, I, I want to stop saying the word truth here, but that's the only thing I can think of right now. Uh, you know, you could, you could say that the experiment's repeatable and so that there's some validity to it. But if you try it from a different approach and you just can't come to the same conclusion, uh, then... I wouldn't say that that nullifies the result, but it certainly does put a question on it, which I think is like, uh, to me, uh, one of the more powerful aspects of the scientific process, which is that not everything is set in stone. We have a few physical laws that Newton just so mm. happened upon a, few, you know, a bunch of years ago, uh, but really nothing else is a law. And even then, I, you know, after these conversations, I'm just like, did Newton just so happen to find some sort of like, you know, the closest thing we have to a universal truth? Or do we just have that gap in understanding that you just described? And we're just waiting for something to come up that invalidates those laws. Mm. Yeah, uh, I'm not going to touch Newton's laws <laughs> right now. That's I feel like that's a big question. But this idea of scientific inquiry i think fits really well with what motivated uh me and, and i'm not gonna 
spell out what I was working on in my dissertation. It's I never completed it, and and it's just kind of a project that I'm interested in. But um, I do think that what we're pulling on here are the threads that motivate me to take up that project. And that was, how can we believe in something like objective truth that is perspective, um, that is relational, right? Like it may not be relative in the subjective sense, but it has to, we have to acknowledge the points in which an assertion is true relative to a context or to a speaker, right? And so to capture that rel relativity in truth without making it subjective is what motivated my project. And I think scientific inquiry is kind of approaching the same thing. We want thing, we want to make claims that are true, universally true. I think we want to say that they're true within the parameters of the of the inquiry. What whatever is motivating that project and within the limits of the language of that project, we want the claims that are true. We want to find the answers that satisfy those criteria. And so I'll go back to the structure that we set up in the value episode. You have the thing that you're investigating. You have the criteria, and then you have the judgment that comes out of evaluating that thing by the criteria. And I think truth works that way. We've got a statement. We have the truth criteria, whatever those are, and then the truth value. Is that statement true or false? Which is an assessment of the assertion, not, not the reality or the world. I think <laughs> that layering that you just provided uh, makes a lot of sense and I keep thinking about this, and I don't mean to switch gears, but I, I hope it works out. Um, it, makes a, uh, it reminds me of the learning process, which was like a really big question that I had coming into this season, which was like how people learn. And uh, mm. the way I should say we teach, the way that I teach, the way that I've been trained to teach um, is that we can use people's experiences to help them kind of come up with truth for themselves, but not in the same way that we talked about earlier. But it's more like this structure that you're talking about here, right? The statement, the criteria, and then the judgment. And so we typically present evidence that is so far from their own experiential perspective that it helps illustrate that sometimes there's just things we don't currently have language for, but we can develop that language. But then through that experience, right, this is where the, the, the criteria comes into play, is you have the tools to evaluate what's happening here. And you are not only like, you know, evaluating the criteria, but you're also developing language that allows you to evaluate that criteria. And then here's where the magic happens because in the judgment, um, everybody who has this same experience, who has different sets of prior knowledge and prior experience, thus different kind of like initial criterion terms, can come together to the same conclusion, even though they all had separate truths prior to that experience. And that to me is like a really powerful aspect of the process that I employ is that even if we all had our truths before, now we have a, you know, kind of a co-truth at the conclusion of it through that like statement criteria judgment process. I love characterizing it from a, um, 
from a social aspect. Like, how can we come to settle disagreements? And and there's this idea of arriving at or, or pursuing some kind of consensus. I do want to make one clarification that I we talk about the truth evaluation, and that implies that there is a person doing the evaluation. And I kind of want to take out that idea that there's a person doing it. I want to say it's an automatic process uh, where if the content satisfies the criteria, it's just the case that that is what it means for it to be true. And if it doesn't satisfy the criteria, that's just what it means for it to be false. And that doesn't require a person with a perspective to make that evaluation. I say that, however, I do think that assessments are context relative. So the criteria can change from one context to another. And David Lewis uh, uses this example where, I, whether I, or not I say, I know I locked my door at home. You know, if, if I'm at a bar and I'm talking with my friends and I say, I know I locked my door at home, they're probably not going to challenge that, right? There's, okay, great. And I feel confident in, in my assertion. And it seems like it's a true statement. And if it's locked at home and I believe it, it's true. But if I go to philosophy class and say, I locked my door at home, and the professor says, how do you know you're not a brain in a vat? All of a sudden, the criteria has changed because we have like this huge metaphysical question about what it means to be a mind, uh, the, the possibility of the illusion of exterior, external properties and external bodies, like all these other kind of factors that come in that didn't come into the conversation at the bar. Like they just weren't on the table now are on the table because now we're having a philosophical investigation, right? And so the criteria have changed because the context has changed. <laughs> That's such a question out of left field. <laughs> how, do you, how do you know you're not a brain in a vat? <laughs> I'm like, as you said that, I was so stunned. I was like, oh my God, that just invalidates everything I've ever thought. <laughs> and Descartes example was how do you know that there isn't an evil demon or evil scientist that has tricked us all and, and made our minds think things that we that aren't true it's kind of interesting that these uh, philosophers uh, thought this when like one of the great debates of now is like is the universe a simulation which is mm -hmm. essentially in that same mold it's just a bit more complicated right Right. Yeah, no, it's definitely a continuation of the skepticism hypothesis. And and I'm not sure that we have like a, a surefire way to shut down skepticism. I think we have to acknowledge that it's a possibility. I don't think we need to dread about it. I, I just feel like it produces some epistemic humility that we might be wrong. And then we can move on and, and refine our context to the bar or to the scientific lab instead of the philosophical quandary. Right. So... Um... Just to go back to, sorry, I'll let you jump in there. Uh, I just wanted to tie this back real quick to your statement about persons, because all I was trying to say is that evaluation doesn't require an authority to validate the truth or falsity of the statement. So this idea that we we will come to agree on the truth, I think it's more like we'll arrive in a context where the criteria are shared. And, and so the criteria is what we're trying to agree on not not the evaluation yeah and as you classified it that way um i realized that my even my example basically was that right like uh, i'm presenting <laughs> physical phenomena so the from a scientific standpoint right these things happen the way they happen 
and that's really all there is to it unless you provide a different set of circumstances so it's basically true in that situation uh, but even still we try to mimic that truth process through that social aspect um, so we're essentially just arriving to uh, develop the language for the criteria that allows us to see that this is true in the set of circumstances mm. it's kind of like a, a metaphysical truth on top of the physical truth yeah and what's interesting <clears throat> so just to throw a wrinkle and kind of remotivate the the contextual notion of of truth is ice is ice solid well when we're talking at a macro level of solid liquid and gas then yes ice is solid but when we're talking at an atomic level no there's all kinds of empty space in between the molecules of a of an ice cube and so it's not solid through and through it has molecules that forms a a substance that we classify as solid at a macro level right but the term solid changes meaning from the context of macro to micro it always boggled my mind that uh an ice you know anything even like wood thing that we identify as solid all the time right is like you know at the microscopic level basically just empty space um right <laughs> i have to i do have to kind of do a little course correction here because the uh the molecular structure and um characteristics is what determines whether it's a solid liquid or gas and uh so even like at the microscopic level you could say that you could identify something as solid because it's essentially like bound physically in a different way than it would be if it was liquid but if you're if you happen to be that small ant-man sized in the quantum realm uh, it would be really hard to uh, distinguish those unless you have some sort of crazy probe or sensor that would allow you to say, okay, these are bound, you know, chemically the way that we would expect of a solid or a liquid. Right. And I guess I would just clarify that uh, if we're thinking of the ice cube as an individual unit, then you're still thinking in a macro level, right? At the, at the atomic level, the boundaries between things are the, the atoms themselves. Right. Right. So, so what differentiates the ice, the ice cube from its environment? Well, at a subatomic or atomic level, like that question doesn't make a lot of sense because we're not there aren't ice cubes. Right. Yeah. Again, yeah. perspective strikes again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so that's I think, uh, you know, without trying to make all the arguments necessary to make these claims, I think we can have. Uh, a theory of truth that acknowledges the desire for and and the need for objectivity but also the impulse towards acknowledging perspective-based and relative uh, components of those truth evaluations and so if we take that that structure of what are we evaluating what are the criteria and in, in that context then I can come up with or, or there will be generated a truth value for that statement in that context that is the judgment for all people in that context. But in a different context, the criteria could change and so the evaluation could change. So um, just real quick, I don't think I can do this anymore. Uh, but just based on this conversation that we've had, does your answer about is Paul Pierce the truth, does that change? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, I think the context of 
evaluating him in a basketball game, I would say, no, he's not the truth. He's a player. Like, it doesn't make any sense to call a player the truth. But in the context of evaluating a legacy and uh, evaluating his career, I think the nickname has some interesting aptness to it, but we have to adjust our our definition of the truth. I think the criteria would change because we'd have to change the meaning of, of what we're judging. You just argued with the te- the teacher and get, got a new answer key. Right, right. <laughs> I, I think it's an interesting metaphor, uh, and that's about as far as I'll go with it. I, I don't think it really makes sense to call someone the truth. So uh, last week we talked about taste, and we kind of pushed this idea of preference and uh, which is very subjective, right? My preferences and your preferences are based on our bodies, our values, our experiences. I don't think we can get away from the fact that that's a subjective evaluation. And today we've talked about truth and kind of, I hope, motivated a contextually objective notion of truth. It's objective within contexts of assessment. Maybe those contexts are variable, so we can acknowledge relativity without making it subjective. So we have objective truth of a sort, you have subjective taste. Where does ethics come in? And, and I think we'll talk about this next time. <laughs>